We're all looking forward to an Unlock Melbourne, but for today, it's wait and see. I'm Jan Bartlett, and this is Tuesday Home Time. Today, Duterte goes one step further to fascism. The AOP in Palestine, much to be desired. Another example of apartheid endured by Palestinians. The June Ethics Report, looking for the reasons behind demonstrations in Cuba. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A weak Jan listener when friends know that not connected to this dry July fad, but for years alcohol has not passed my lips in July, well, January and July, and maybe it's the abnormality of all that that has led me to having these silly thoughts. Remember last week I suggested that if the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories were still in the hands of the bloated, inefficient public sector, the vaccination shambles may not be a shambles. Well... This week I've had another silly, silly thought. See, one of the big investors in the Crook Casino, clutching at very flaky straws as Jamie Puker's private mint on the Yarra Bank fights to prevent Jamie and the team being declared not fit and proper to take the punters hard-earned, has suggested the answer lies with the state government forking out lots more money for the regulator to do what it hasn't been doing. Presumably money from the state income anti-poking, anti-gambling campaigners claim explains the lack of zeal in dealing with the industry. Well, my silly thought is, if the public has to spend heaps, and this presumes it would take it seriously, spend heaps to prevent the rampant criminality by the Yarra, then why shouldn't the casino, rather than the public purse, have to fund the regulator? (laughs) Told you it was silly. I'm having such a silly month. Because how could anyone suggest Jamie Puker is not a fit and proper person to take other people's money? For heaven's sake, his family's been doing it all their lives. It's their raison d'etre. Although the Crook Casino lot picked up the Oops, that hurt, I shot myself in the foot award of the week for its brilliant self-preservation tactic of sending a solicitor's letter to the state government pointing out the disaster if it could not go on ripping off or, sorry, taking people's money. Repercussions for the state, for the shareholders, for the workers. It would renege on loan obligations. Calamitous for all of us, which, hard as it is to believe, the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commissioner took as a threat to circumvent a not-fit-and-proper finding, as if Jamie and the team would threaten anyone. But with blood pouring from its foot, the board said the letter may have been a bit of a mistake. A bit! Jamie doesn't threaten people, he just thumps them. Reminded of his pugilistic skills this week with the death of former capitalist media executive David Leckie, whom we recall that Sunday morning on a well-manicured nature strip a few years ago, David Rocky Leckie versus Jamie Kid Puker for the posh Sydney Harborside Suburbs title. And recently, a Kid Puker employee claimed the kid had thumped him, so Jamie's keeping his hand in, or well, his fist in. Speaking of the vaccine shambles, well, as we said last week, it makes the shambles look like organised perfection. We also pointed out, Big Supremo scuttled them more, Lash Sun, a.k.a. Scummo, says everyone should have been vaccinated by Christmas, although he didn't say which, he, which Christmas, given that when he said it would be all over by Easter, we thought naively he meant last Easter. But at least Scummo declared his love for Trublawazi. Well, indirectly, as he pointed out, love means never having to say you're sorry. 
and never having to say they're sorry because they're the font of all wisdom, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, also mentioned last week, so omniscient that great exemplar of respectable journalism, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, quotes it regularly. And this week, Wapping Sin's scoop, after three councils have signed up to an international local government campaign, urging federal governments to ratify a non-proliferation treaty against fossil fuels, similar to the campaign against nuclear weapons, which Trublowozzi refuses to sign because, well, because it refuses to sign. Scoop headline, Fossil Fuels Proliferate, Green Councils Slammed Again. Note the brilliant play on words on fossil fuels, fossil fools, so clever, and note again, showing they are repeat offenders. Greens-dominated councils have been criticised, etc. And who is criticising them? <laughs> OK, OK, no prizes for guessing. Yep, the good old Institute of Public, very, very private. An intention-seeking stunt, it exploded. Trublowozzi contributes less than 1.3% to global carbon emissions. Darabin, Yarra and Moreland emissions are a tiny fraction of that, so their activism won't actually make any difference. What fossil fools they are. We can but assume that so respectable a source, figures would, as figures would be correct, like taking our Scope 3 emissions into account, the massive quantities of coal and gas we export across the globe for starters, but what relief for all of us. Thanks to the Institute of, we can sit back, relax, and know we don't have to do anything about climate change if there is such a thing, which the Institute knows there isn't. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the end of the planet as we know it. Fossil fools proliferate, another balanced objective example of Lord Rupert of Wapping reporting. Oh, cities that have signed up apart from Darab and Yarra and Moreland include such hotbeds of long-haired, commie, warmest climate change conspiracy as Los Angeles, Vancouver and Barcelona. We can be sure that deep thinkers, they must be because the Wapping Sin describes them as think tank, well, the tank bit sounds appropriate, and in turn, the Institute would describe the Wapping Sin as a quality journal crammed with wise journalists and commentators who know there is no such thing as climate change. Why, one of them says the Earth is actually cooling and so-called endangered Pacific islands and atolls are expanding rather than sinking. Hmm food for thought there, but I digress. We can be sure the Institute of Public very, very deep thinkers would know that if the US of the UN of the US of the world or Canada or Spain ratified the non-proliferation treaty, their contributions are so tiny it would make no difference to that which is not happening anyway, and anyway right now those countries have got more to think about like massive lethal floods and massive lethal fires and unbearable lethal heat waves and rising sea levels. Our reference to the Institute of Private very, very last week was over a former Institute thinker, now Supremo of the Chamber of Profits, Jenny Lambase Labor, attacking ACTU Secretary Sally McManus for her claim that wages had stagnated and we needed wage increases. Jenny quite properly pointing out wages have soared by a massive 0.5% a year for the past decade and the answer anyway lay with workers working much, much harder and lifting their pathetic productivity. And we all know the most ingrate of the lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions is the criminal, no respect for the law construction union, the evil, evil, 
CFWMEU. Its economic and industrial perfidy exposed regularly by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, which highlights every criminal act, reports every conviction when their honours fine the union and its organisers and members trillions, quoting the bench's dismay at the lawlessness, the lack of respect for the law, illegally entering sites just because of a few safety problems, conducting that most illegal of activities, a picket line, and that most heinous of crimes, calling a scab, wait for it, wait for it, a scab. Sorry, calling workers who just want to do a fair day's work for an unfair day's pay a scab. Pure evil. Except when, well... The Capitalist Review is also gung-ho about stopping these economically disastrous lockdowns, that we must learn to live with the virus, learn to live and die with the virus, and recognise a few deaths and a bit of virus are nothing compared to the economic damage, the price of a price. And as such, New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berridge-Lockermin has been their hero, gold-plated handling of the virus, the corollary of our state Supremo, the pejorative Dan, who seems to think stopping people dying is more important. Well, how the worm has turned. Gladys crashes from gold standard to rusted tin, and a Capitalist Review feature writer comes up with, Berridge Lockerman loses nerve at construction expense. How dare she close down the construction industry just because a few workers travelling around the place could spread a little bit of a pandemic. The construction industry was 100% safe, practised all the necessary precautions... And here's the point of all this, listener. What is the first reason why it is so safe? Thanks, the writer wrote, to strong unions. <laughs> so suddenly, the most evil force in the country, out of control, no respect for the law, is the hero, strong, a victim of rusted tin standard Gladys. But we shouldn't get too excited. Rest assured, they'll soon relapse into the most evil force in the country yet again. Finally, in an interview yesterday, Hayseed and Sheepshit Supremo Barnacle said, we are all intelligent beings. Uh, food for thought there. Good afternoon. Mr. Kevin Healy. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. After decades of efforts, whether successful in part or not, President Turte of the Philippines has thrown away all that has been achieved in the off and on again peace negotiations with the leaders and members of various parties in the Philippines. During the presidency itself, President Ramos, Estrada, Aurora and Aquino Jr. He's achieved this through the designation of the NDF of the Philippines as a terrorist organisation saying that it would be a great help in the efforts to end communism insurgency in the country. But to move the designation of the NDFP as a terrorist organisation has been seen as the ultimate anti-peace act. I'm speaking with human rights activist May Kutsapakis. May, perhaps before we go on any further, I could ask you to identify the groups that we're going to be hearing as acronyms in the next little while so that we can get an understanding of just who they are. So the GRP is the Government of the Republic of the Philippines. NDFP is the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, and they are the two parties that are engaged in peace negotiations. They were engaged in 
peace negotiations. APC is the Anti-Terrorism Council that was formed when uh, Duterte signed that Anti-Terrorism Act in June, June, July this year. That is a very harsh uh, law in the Philippines that targets uh, any opposition, activists, human rights advocates, anyone who criticizes the government is target of that uh, Anti-Terrorism Act. We're talking now about the Anti-Terrorism Council Resolution Number 21. What does that mean? That was in 19th of this month when the Anti-Terrorism Council designated National Democratic Front of the Philippines as a terrorist group. And remember that this Anti-Terrorism Council can designate anyone, any group, as terrorist group without any benefit of a court or any benefit of any uh, proof. They can just designate anyone they like or anyone that they prefer to designate as a terrorist group. But this was the body that was taking part in the peace process. Exactly, yes. The National Democratic Front of the Philippines and the government of the Republic of the Philippines has been engaged in peace negotiations since 1986 during the term of Corazon Aquino. Although it is on and off, you know, but all the presidents after her has been engaged in uh, peace negotiations with the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. As you probably know, the, the National Democratic Front of the Philippines represents the Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army and other revolutionary groups in the Philippines. This revolutionary group has been engaged in a revolution in, in the Philippines since 1960s, 1968, and they have their own government, mostly in the countryside. So they, there is a revolutionary government in the Philippines, and this, there is uh, the Manila government with uh, President Duterte as the head. Was this designation expected? I think that the, the government, the Duterte government, is desperate. Desperate, really, to, you know, because the, when uh, he actually uh, promised, I think he promised the United States and other masters that he is going to end the armed revolution by the end of 2017. Of course, uh, oh, it didn't happen. And now his term is supposed to end in May 2022. Th- there is a presidential election in May 2022, so his term is going to end. And so he hasn't actually, not a little bit, has he even dented the revolutionary people there. So he hasn't ended what he said is going to end, the armed struggle. But of course, he cannot end the uh, glamour of the people unless it is addressed. That's why he is very disparate now. First, he has proscribed or he has designated a lot of activists, even uh, human rights workers, as terrorists or supporters of terrorists or front of terrorists, a lot of even the organizations like civil society organizations or mass organizations like Migranti, Gabriel, and Aquine, they are organizations that render services to the people and uh, organizing even here in Australia, uh, organizing the migrants, giving services and attend, addressing the welfare of the migrants. They were actually um, uh, designated as front of terrorist organization. The government is very disparate. 
now because the NDSP has already acquired its uh, belligerency and it is known around the world as, uh, you know, as uh, conducting a, an armed revolution. It is justified. I mean, uh, well, a lot of people are saying that the armed revolution in the Philippines is justified because of the condition, the social economic condition of the Philippines. So Duterte is in his last term, last year term, and he is trying to do everything he can to sort of paralyze, to silence everyone that is sort of opposing the government policies, anti-people policies. Even I think the revolutionary or the NDFP probably maybe not expecting that to be done, but expecting other things that Duterte might do in his last term, you know. I did read that being part of the peace process gave the members of that those organizations some sort of security from arrest yes. or now that's gone. Yes, there was that agreement in nineteen ninety five which is called the JASIG or the Joint Agreement on Safety and Immunity Guarantees that will guarantee uh, safety and immunity of all those consultants, the peace consultants of both, you know, both the parties, like the government of Philippines, a, anyone that is party or consultants of the peace process, they are supposed to be able, the same as the uh, consultants of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. So they are supposed to be able around the Philippines, uh, talk to people without fear of persecution or harassment or being arrested. That agreement was signed in 1995. The 30 is not, um, is not sort of respecting that. Because there are at the moment there are actually a lot of consultants. Some has already been murdered, and others are in prison. Philippine government does not respect those agreements that has been signed. So you expect more arrests and imprisonments. We do, especially with that ATA or the Anti-Terrorism Act. We expect uh, more arrest and uh, harassment. And, uh, you know, in the Philippines, many activists, you know, the authorities, they actually hung their names and their pictures in public places and called them terrorists, which is really very dangerous for these people. Like in countrysides, some of the leaders, like peasant leaders or community leaders, they have their pictures hung in marketplace in public places and it says there npa or recruiting recruiter of npa which is the new people's army armed um, uh, sector of the communist part of the philippines would you say that this behavior by the government is more excessive than it was under marcos it is more excessive because just you know i mean present, uh, some reports say that under the 30 government, there has been more than 30,000, at least 30,000, which is, has been already murdered, extrajudicially killed. Some of those, majority of those, are under the war on drugs. And uh, Marcos, in his 20 years, he hasn't murdered 30,000 with the Duterte in his five years of tenure, already murdered about 30,000 Filipinos. Publicly, he would speak that he doesn't care about human rights. You can, you know, shoot them or kill them, something like that. He is so 
arrogant or what do you call that? He can he order the police and the military to do such horrible things, such as killing people, you know. Don't worry about human rights. He attacked even the church. He attacked everyone, you know, uh, even the United Nations. He said that they are, uh, United Nations are being used by the NDFP or the Communist Party of the Philippines. The ICC, that's why he withdrew from the International Criminal, Criminal Court. He withdrew the Philippines from the International Criminal Court. So Duterte is more brutal than Marcos, although because Marcos has a lot of human rights as well because his tenure was so long. He ruled the government for 20 years. But compared to Duterte, who has just been in office for just over five years, and that is already the brutality, the killings, the harassment, arrest that he has already you know, done. And this is a government that we're supporting, the Australian government is supporting. Yes, giving uh, <laughs> military support, military aid, financial, material, training. Yeah, that is the government that, we, that Australia is supporting. Has there been a reaction from the people who are now targeted to this designation? Will there be more fighting? Is that the, is that the result of this? Yeah, there is already. There are several statements already that was uh, issued by the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, and they are saying that the people will not stop. People will not stop to, you know, to attack the government now, well, to uh, protest, and the people in the countryside, the New People's Army, will not stop with their activities. But some of the result of that is more people will, do, will go underground, and actually... Professor Jose Maria Sison said that Duterte is the most active or the best uh, recruiter of the New People's Army. Because one way of those that are being harassed, those that are being listed as, uh, you know, as terrorists or NPA, they can either, you know, stay in the city and have their life always in danger, or they can go underground and then, or go to the mountains. And because it is safer there, where there is a protection from the New People's Army. The effect of that is the in more intensity in the fighting, intensify in the protest. I think the people, the Filipino people, cannot be silenced. You say that Duterte won't be standing next year. Has he appointed someone to replace him, in a sense? Even the, their party, which is the PDP Laban, the plan, apparently, of Duterte is to be the vice president, to run for vice presidency and have his daughter, Sarah Duterte, who is the current mayor of Dabao City, to run for president, and he becomes the vice president. And, of course, everybody knows that the, he will still control, you know. In the Constitution, the Philippine Constitution, the president can only have one term for six years. And so he cannot run for president again, even for vice president, because as vice president, if the president is incapacitated, he automatically you know, goes up to the president's seat. So that is anti-constitution, the plan of the 30 to run for vice president. But of course, he doesn't even respect the law. That's why there are lots of um, protests or lots of uh, people are actually uniting the opposition, which is, has never happened before. The opposition of the 30 are forming into one group. 
to oppose the the thirty sort of uh, oligarchs or uh, what do you call that uh, political dynasty opposition the different parties that belong that does not belong to the the thirty camp they are forming this they call sambayan which is they are uniting to field just one candidate for its position because in the last election there were several like presidential candidates so what happened if that happened the opposition vote will be sort of divided into different candidates but if the opposition only field one candidate for president for vice president then all the opposition are united to vote only for one candidate so that is a very big possibility i think that will defeat the torte unless of course that he cheats the election because uh, well that is very common in the philippines the incumbent can easily cheat the election so i've been speaking with may kosakis human rights activist from the philippines and we'll be hearing from may on the program next week Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Recently, Labor leader Anthony Albanese participated in a Zoom call hosted by the Executive Council of Australian Jury with 70 community leaders. He made a number of pronouncements which incensed Palestinians and their supporters so much that an online emailing campaign to Albanese and their federal Labor representatives resulted in Albanese agreeing to sit down and talk with Bishop George Browning, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network President, and agreeing to participate in a Zoom event to talk with Australian-Palestinians. Today I'm speaking with one of those Australian-Palestinians, Janine Valek, and I asked Janine first what her reactions were on hearing the comments made by Albanese at that Zoom meeting, and was she surprised by them? I mean, I felt a combination of surprise and disbelief, and also it wasn't surprising whatsoever, given Labor's continued empty, hollow words and lip service about you know, two states and, and settlement. They haven't ever said or done anything actionable, really. As we've seen over the last few years, I mean, the Labor Party's hasn't been much of an opposition to the Liberal Party. So in a sense, I wasn't necessarily surprised. But I was, of course, disgusted because, I mean, the Labor Party, especially in Western Sydney and Southwestern Sydney, tends to rely on constituents that come from, you know, Arab, Palestinian, Muslim backgrounds to win their seats. It was just, yeah, incredibly disappointing when I I read those comments. And and also, like, I know myself that Albanese has professed very quietly, he's, he's whispered these things to Palestinian Australians in the past, that he is a supporter and he once advocated for, for Palestine in his uni days and when he was much younger. So it was really clear that this was just an attempt to pander to score political points. I know that a lot of people who read the comments were disgusted. But you're, as a Palestinian, that must really hurt the words that he says. Because people have, or people did have, great expectations from the Labor Party, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's, it's always, you know, hurtful to, to read these things and to come across people who believe these things. But sadly, I mean, that's the, the reality for us. 
Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And you would think this was only not even, it hasn't even been two months since Israel's latest onslaught on Gaza, which has killed over 200 Palestinians and almost 60 children. And they've had to focus on on trying to rebuild their lives once again under a military siege. And Palestinians in in Beta, in Sheikh Jarrah, in in Lista are fighting for their land against settlement expansion. And so you would think in light of all of this that they would, you know, the information is there. We know the facts on the ground. Um, Human Rights Watch recently, I mean, it was 73 years too late, but acknowledged um, and published a report that stated that Israel is committing crimes against apartheid. So Anthony Albanese was engaging in historical revisionism. I mean, it's, it's one thing to have, you know, a differing opinion on something, but to completely undermine the facts on the ground. It's, it's really frustrating, and that's what Palestinians, I mean, many different movements are up against. It's the denialism that we have to put up with every day. The fact that our, our testimonies and what's happening on the ground are completely rewritten. And also the fact that the Labor Party has endorsed the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. I believe even the Liberal Party hasn't done that. Yeah, exactly. And the, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is you know, extremely problematic beyond you know, the first paragraph uh, it's you know uh, it's a 20 words that describes anti-semitism and it's fair and it's you know makes sense but there are uh, following points after that particular definition and the points are sort of in part of that definition that equate criticism of israel and anti-zionism with anti-semitism so unfortunately, we're seeing the weaponization of a very real and you know a horrible phenomenon of, of anti-Semitism being used to to silence a you know, Palestinian movement that's in pursuit of of human rights, dignity, freedom, and and liberation. That so many individuals and groups around the world have denied that that interpretation of anti-Semitism. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, there's sort of been a, a mixed response to it. But, you know, putting the definition aside for a moment, in the U.S., we've seen, you know, states adopt anti-BDS legislation. And the New York governor recently came out condemning, for example, Ben & Jerry's for now no longer selling their, their products in the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank. And so we are we are seeing, I suppose, just the real spread of censorship and erasure of, of Palestine and Palestinian movement all over the world through weaponizing anti-Semitism, whether that's the IHRA definition itself or through anti-BDS stances and laws. And an important issue is anti-apartheid and apartheid. Israel and their supporters deny that there is apartheid. Can you give some examples maybe of your friends and families who have suffered under this system, how they are facing now, what they are facing? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, supporters of Israel will deny that there is apartheid. But, you know, in Palestine 48, which is what Israel currently occupies as the official state itself, there are 60 laws that discriminate against Palestinian citizens of, of Israel. And one of those laws, which was, you know, always in place and was the very essence of the creation of the state of Israel, is the nation-state law, the Jewish nation-state law, which enshrined the fact that this is an ethno-religious state. And in the occupied territories in the West Bank and in Gaza, we see the expansion of illegal settler colonies, Jewish-only roads. Palestinians living under military occupation, having every aspect of their lives um, being controlled, what goes in, what goes out, who goes in, who goes out. You know, I have friends in, in Bethlehem who are 15 minutes away from Jerusalem and they've never been to Jerusalem. We have many people in the West Bank, many Palestinians are, are landlocked and the sea is only 45 minutes away in their historical land which they have no right to return to. And in Gaza, I mean, they can't leave. They can't go anywhere. Israel controls everything that, that goes in and out. My family, my family was exiled in 1948 and have been, it's been generations of my family living in refugee camps in Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan. And they don't have the right to return, nor do their, their descendants. Um, I don't have the right to return, whereas somebody from Melbourne, for example, who has Jewish lineage, is able to get automatic citizenship and is able to go and settle on, you know, my family's land in the, in the north of Palestine, in the Galilee, in Asa, in, in Haifa, in Safad. And so we are discriminated against in, in every way possible, whether we are actively living under occupation or, you know, as as hostages to the state state of Israel as Palestinian citizens there, or whether we are in the diaspora, especially as refugees and, and their descendants. There's one story that, that disturbs many people, and that was the giving out of vaccines to Palestinians. And people found out very soon after that those vaccines were out of date. Has that been rectified to your knowledge? The rectification at this point um, is being negotiated by the so-called Palestinian Authority, which is essentially it collaborates with the State of Israel and is an extension of the State of Israel. The Palestinian Authority is, is no government of the Palestinians that live in the West Bank. There haven't been any elections and they, they serve the, the will of the State of Israel and help maintain the military occupation. But what happened was that Israel asked in this very shoddy quote unquote negotiation that the the vaccines that were coming in from outside to the Palestinian territories that the Palestinians have been waiting on. If Israel could take those instead and they could give the ones that they have, the Palestinians could get it sooner. And, you know, it seems on the face of it to people who don't, who aren't really aware of it as a you know, benevolent act, but they sent over almost expired, you know, vaccines. And it was impossible to, to roll that out 
and to vaccinate Palestinians because they were, you know, a dud product, essentially. Those are discussions that are being had with the, the PA and Israel, but they are both sides of the same coin. So it's, um, I don't really have faith in, um, in the outcome. Have you heard the latest in the situation for the people in both West Bank and Gaza regarding the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic has, in, in terms of the, the current situation, I mean, it's been horrendous, I suppose, you know, living under and being subjugated by military control, also having to deal with global health crisis and not being able to have any say or any real control over the response to that has really impacted, you know, Palestinians who are, you know, dying from COVID. You know, I have friends in the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank who, you know, have been been isolating and have been wearing masks to the best of their ability. And that's all they can do right now while they, they wait for vaccines. And similarly, in, in Gaza, I mean, Gaza is the, the most densely populated city on earth and they've just been you know decimated once again and so there are plenty of people who are suffering from covid um who have died from covid and i mean the same can be said of you know palestinian refugees as well like in in lebanon many have been suffering from from covid and the situation in lebanon has been dire itself for for other reasons but they're there aren't any protections whatsoever. The situation of Palestinians essentially, you know, hasn't changed, but it has definitely been worsened um, in some regards by the pandemic. Are you aware if it's possible to get vaccines from other sources rather than Israel? Yes, however, Israel determines which vaccines come in and out and whether they can there was an ex- external vaccines that were going to be sent to the territories in the West Bank, but they've limited how much can come in. And they've also, I mean, they've blockaded, essentially, the allowance of, of vaccines. It was, I think, earlier this year or, or late last year, I believe it was the EU, I'd have to double check that, that said that they could you know, send vaccines to the Palestinian territories, that it was Israel that said, no, we won't allow that to happen. So I think what really needs to be understood here is that Israel controls the land, the sea, the skies, the destiny of Palestinians who are beholden um, and being held hostage by the state that also won't play well with other states because if it means easing the situation for Palestinians, then they won't. They don't want to. It doesn't serve their interests. Finally, Janine, the election, the federal election, I believe, is next year. Mr Albanese is going to have to pull some hats out of the box, isn't he, if he wants to see people, particularly in the western suburbs of Sydney, to vote for him. I I think people see through it, you know, during Israel's massacre and onslaught of Gaza in in May, many Labour MPs sort of both sides of the situation or said nothing at all. So this isn't this wasn't just based on Albanese's most recent comments 
you know, denying that Israel is an apartheid state. I think it's sort of far too gone for um, a lot of these Labour MPs. There's huge distrust um, in politicians. And also, they haven't necessarily done anything to serve these communities, aside from going along to little multicultural, you know, fairs or, or Ramadan dinners, you know, pretending that they stand for these multicultural communities without actually analysing and taking a stance on the many reasons why we are here. And that includes, you know, recent, you know, refugees from Iraq, from Syria. They're just, they, it's just a very sort of hollow, performative relationship that Labour has with these quote-unquote multicultural, you know, communities. So, I mean, they can sort of pull out all their tricks, but people see through it now. I think people are fatigued, especially given the pandemic and levels of trust are really low. Can you see any joy in the Greens party? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, from conversations that I've had, you know, even with some of my elders who are generally a bit more, you know, more socially conservative in some ways than, you know, the ordinary sort of Green supporter, that they do see the Greens as a viable, you know, third party. But I think it's incumbent on the Greens to do a lot more work and show their faces and show up in, in those particular communities um, because right now it's it's really the Liberal Party and the Labor Party that are, are put forward as, you know, viable options. Um, and so I think there's a lot of groundwork that the Greens can be doing to really shift away and also channel that the discontentment that a lot of voters have here with the Labor Party towards theirs. And just to educate the community, because a lot of people in the community still aren't aware of what's happening in in Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I think education is absolutely one thing. I mean, there is information at everybody's fingertips, I suppose. But the duty, I suppose, of of politicians to take a stand on this and, and not to pretend that, you know, you know, these aren't domestic issues, they don't, you know, affect us, while also pandering and making space and making room for Israel lobby groups. They can't then step away and say, well, this, you know, this isn't, this is international stuff, this has nothing to do with us. No, I mean, relationships that they have built with these lobby groups that only serve, you know, Israel's interests, use their, their, their resources to silence Palestinians and to silence any any support for Palestinians, as we saw with you know Melissa Park, the Labor MP in Western Australia, who got smeared for calling Israel an apartheid state. I, I just think people need to, you know, politicians need to, to stand up and and not both sides it and and be really clear about standing on the right side of history. And if they don't, then history will look will not look at them very favourably. I mean, it's fairly black and white. I've been speaking with Janine Balik, Australian-Palestinian writer and content creator. And to follow on from Janine's interview, 
we're going to hear an episode from This is Palestine. In this episode, we hear from journalist and activist Jahara Baker. She discusses the hardships of being with her husband and kids under Israel's citizenship and entry into Israel law. Enacted in 2003, the Citizen and Entry into Israel law is aimed at making the process for non-Jews to acquire citizenship even more difficult than it already was. Under the 2003 law, any Israeli citizen or permanent resident who marries someone who holds a Palestinian ID, whether that person is from the West Bank or from the Gaza Strip, cannot have their spouse reside in Jerusalem or in 1948 without first obtaining a permit and cannot obtain citizenship or permanent residency through their spouses. Welcome to This is Palestine. I'm Deanna Butu. Today we will hear from Johara Becker, a journalist and activist, who will talk to us today about what it's like to live under Israel's family reunification laws. Johara is an American citizen who moved back to Palestine in the 1980s. My parents are both Palestinian. I was born in the United States, and we moved back to Palestine when I was 11. So I didn't get Palestinian um, citizenship until after the Oslo Accords in 93, 94. For Palestinians, moving back to Palestine is not an easy matter. Thousands of Palestinians returning from abroad including those born in Palestine, are routinely denied the ability to live in or even enter Palestine. In Johara's case, given that she returned to Palestine before the establishment of the Palestinian Authority in 1994, and given that she had lived in Palestine as a child for a long period of time, she was among those who were given a Palestinian ID and hence a Palestinian passport. This identification card gives Johara the ability to live in the West Bank, but she needs an Israeli permit to be able to enter Jerusalem, to visit 48 Palestine, or to visit the Gaza Strip. Johara's brother and father, however, were not given such ID cards because they were living outside of the West Bank when the process of issuing ID cards began. In 1998, Johara married her husband, Musa. Musa is a Palestinian from Jerusalem, carrying a Jerusalem ID card and holding an Israeli travel permit. As a person carrying a Jerusalem ID card, Musa is not a citizen of Israel, but a permanent resident, even though generations of his family have lived in Jerusalem, in particular in the Old City. As a permanent resident, Musa must continually show that as they put it, Jerusalem is the, quote, center of his life, unquote. He does this by producing stacks of documents to show that he is living in Jerusalem, everything from utility bills to property taxes and so on. He has to prove that he lives, uh, that we both live in Jerusalem, that he works, that he in the city, that the children, if there are any children, they have to be registered in Jerusalem schools, that you had to get medical insurance in the city, you pay taxes, you have. So we had to produce electricity bills, water bills, the land, and the property tax bills, the Arnona. We had to, every year you have to have, there's a stack of papers that you have to provide. You cannot have a house or live in the West Bank because then they would, they say that this is grounds for revoking my husband's, not mine, my husband's Jerusalem um, ID. 
uh, even though my Hawi and my Palestinian idea remain the same and my and my the address, my residency address is still Elbir. It just says that I'm allowed to remain in Jerusalem, but virtually with no rights. You're not allowed to drive, you're not allowed to cross their borders, you're not allowed to work unless you get specific permits, and that's another long process. So, yeah, that's what I got for 10 years, but it's always, it's very tenuous. You never know when they're going to to deny it to you, which they did last year. So you never know. And then they just make some bogus um, excuse why they have put it on hold, and then you just have to wait. You're at their mercy at all times. If he cannot produce these documents, or if he moves to the West Bank or abroad, Israel can revoke his permanent residency, preventing him from living in Jerusalem or even from entering the country. Since 1967, Israel has revoked the permanent residency of more than 14,000 Palestinians from Jerusalem. Incidentally, Jewish Israelis do not face similar problems. When Johara and Musa got married, Johara, remember, she needs a permit to enter Jerusalem, applied for a permit to live in Musa's family home in the old city of Jerusalem. But because Musa had previously been a political prisoner, her application was denied and she was forced to reside illegally in her home for 11 years. What this meant is that Johara was unable to apply for or obtain her husband's permanent residency status and instead would remain a West Bank Palestinian ID holder needing Israeli permits to enter Jerusalem. During this period, Johara feared leaving her home. She was unable to drive or work, and she didn't have any health insurance. In effect, she was undocumented. But even though undocumented, the Israelis knew that she was living in Jerusalem because she had two children, born in 1999 and in 2002. So my kids were born in Jerusalem, and we had to, I had to have had them in Jerusalem again so that they can be registered as Jerusalemites. Now, the thing is, with registering your children in the Interior Ministry to get the birth certificate, you have to go to the Interior Ministry. My husband does, not me. With my son, it wasn't as hard, because that was in the, at the end of 1999. And then, of course, in 2000, things started to blow up, and things just got worse. So when my daughter was born by, in 2002, I didn't have a permit. I did have the baby in Al-Maqasid. And then my husband had, it took 10 months to get her birth certificate from the Interior Ministry. They kept asking us for more papers. Every time he would get there, they would say there was something missing. The thing is, is that if, if we had not secured it by year one, that when the, you know, the, my daughter turned one, then we would have had to apply for family reunification for her as well. So at least we got it by you know, when she was 10 months old, she finally got her birth certificate. So my children have Jerusalem IDs, but they, at this point, we had to keep them in school here. I could not have a house in the West Bank. And so they, they have secured that. But then we had the problem of if we ever wanted to travel outside of the country, I, we couldn't leave through the same borders because I don't have Jerusalem, a Jerusalem ID. I couldn't use the, the airport. They couldn't cross through Jordan because they don't have Jordanian. So it's always been a real hassle. Now that they're adults, things are different. But this is kind of like the reality that we live in, that we lived with for, for years. According to Israeli law, any person who is Jewish may make Aliyah and become an Israeli citizen, effectively becoming an Israeli upon arrival. 
But for those who are not Jewish, the paths to becoming a citizen are extremely limited. You can only acquire citizenship if you are the child of a person who holds Israeli citizenship or if you marry an Israeli citizen. In the case of marrying a citizen, even then the process is not easy, often taking years for citizenship to be granted. But bear in mind that this process is for non-Jews only. Anyone who is Jewish can easily bypass this years-long process by making aliyah. Effectively, the process for acquiring citizenship through marriage is for non-Jews only, and it's not uncommon for the process to take seven or more years. In 2003, Israel further amended its citizenship law by passing what they called a temporary law aimed at making the process for non-Jews to acquire citizenship even more difficult. Under the new law, any Israeli citizen or permanent resident who marries someone who holds a Palestinian ID, whether that person is from the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, cannot have their spouse reside in Jerusalem or in 48 and cannot obtain citizenship through the track of citizenship granted to spouses. In effect, what this meant is that for Musa, he would not be able to pass on his permanent residency to Johara. In 2007, the law was later amended to add the same restrictions on spouses from Iran, from Iraq, from Syria, and from Lebanon. What this has meant is that these couples face three choices. One, they can leave and live abroad. Two, the Israeli citizenship holding spouse can reside in the West Bank, though that is illegal for those with Israeli citizenship to live in Area A, and those holding Israeli citizenship cannot live in the Gaza Strip. Or three, the spouse with the Palestinian ID can reside illegally in Jerusalem or in 48. After the passage of the law, a minor amendment was issued allowing for those spouses with Palestinian ID cards to obtain temporary permits to reside in Jerusalem or in 48 if they were over the age of 25 in the case of women or over the age of 35 in the case of men. For them, the harder that they make your life, the faster that you're just going to give up on the whole process because it's a really long and stressful process to keep maintaining this this permit and they have revoked not just the id not just with the permits they revoke the ids you have to have a really clean slate and what they call a clean slate in order to be approved uh, so for them it's i'm sure it's just like well we'll just make it really difficult and then maybe they'll just give up and that's one less person to deal with in jerusalem yet these permits are precarious and must be renewed yearly. Those with permits are not allowed to work or drive and are not entitled to any benefits, including health insurance. Their family members from the West Bank or from the Gaza Strip are also required to apply for permits to come to visit them. Registering children married to what these referred to as mixed couples is also an uphill battle with some parents needing to produce DNA records to demonstrate that the child is their biological child. In Johara's case, although she married before the passage of the law, she's still not been able to obtain status in Jerusalem. 
Her youngest child is a university student, and yet Johara remains in limbo. Though she was granted a permit a few years ago to be able to reside in Jerusalem, her permit was later revoked because of claims that she was, quote, inciting, unquote, a claim that has never been substantiated. I mean, they have actually accused me of incitement, um, and that's why they, they suspended my, my permit the last time, but never actually said what, how I incited. She now resides in Ramallah because she does not have a permit, but her husband lives in Jerusalem because he fears that if he moves to Ramallah, his permanent residency will also be revoked. When Johara was able to obtain a permit, she still faced a multitude of restrictions. Here's Johara talking about the inability to drive despite having two driver's licenses and the inability to travel with her kids and spouse through the airport, as well as the inability to work. If my husband's traveling with us, he will travel out of the Lid airport with the children. And I travel via Amman because I have to cross the bridge. And then we meet wherever in Europe. When my husband was not with me, and the children were young, I remember there was one time I was taking them to the U.S. so they can get their U.S. citizenship. I had to have my, my late father. He only has U.S. citizenship. That's another whole thing where he wasn't here during the Oslo Accords, so he wasn't eligible for a Palestinian passport. So he only has U.S. citizenship. So he traveled via the airport. He took my kids with him, and then we met in Amman so that we can travel to the U.S. And then coming back, we had to do the same thing so he can bring them back. He went through the Lid airport, the airport. one was close to Tel Aviv, and you had to go out through Jordan. Yes. And there was one time that when my father was ill and he was recuperating in Switzerland, where my sister lived at the time, and we were going to help my sister, and I had my kids with me. My husband wasn't with me, but they were too young to travel alone. I had to get an escort, you know, for the plane, and I had to have my brother and my brother-in-law take them to the airport and make sure they're on the plane, and I traveled through Jordan the night before. I mean, it was, it, it was really stressful, uh, and that was how we traveled for years and years and years. Now that they're older, they can travel on their own, but this is not something unique to me. I mean, I'm, there are thousands. The law expired earlier this month and has not been renewed, mostly due to attempts on the part of the fascist parties to try to extract concessions and to impose even more onerous conditions on Palestinians. That said, however, there are amendments to the law being planned, which will likely make it even more difficult for, for such spouses. In the meantime, for those like Johara, they remain in limbo, waiting for new permits to reside in Jerusalem. I try not to pin too many hopes on their system, because I know that the policy is the same, whether this law passes or not. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, best case scenario, I will be granted Jerusalem ID. Worst case scenario is that I'll be the way I've been for the past 23 years, Sometimes with a permit, sometimes not. But I, I don't, I don't have any illusions that the that Israel, that the Israeli legal system is in my favor. You've been listening to an episode of This Is Palestine, featuring journalist and activist Yahara Baker. Female identifying artists 
aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Look on your way. What can I say? You feel Let's talk now to Bob Phelps, the Director of the Gene Ethics Network. And we've had councils on the program a few times, Bob, but today it's Nillingbick Council. What's the story? They're among the councils that are considering the future of uh, synthetic chemicals within their uh, shires and cities. They've put out a questionnaire to uh, their residents and we're hoping for a good response. There's, there's been quite a bit of controversy in local newspapers and so on about whether or not the herbicide Roundup should continue to be used in the Shire. And, of course, the rural landowners, farmers and so on, uh, and other land managers have been saying, yes, we've got to have uh, glyphosate-based herbicides, including Roundup. We can't do without them and so on, whereas the people in the suburbs are rightly saying, well, we don't want you spraying glyphosate where our kids are playing, where the pets are running on things like uh, kindergartens, um, playgrounds, on uh, nature trails and places where people are easily exposed both to the chemical itself and to its residues. So there's been an interesting debate uh, in the Limbic and we're hopeful that uh, there will be some kind of staged phase-out of... Uh, of those chemicals there, not just the glyphosate-based herbicides, of course, but any others that they might be using and synthetic chemicals that they're using for any purpose. Uh, councils are starting to realise that they are um, legally exposed if they uh, don't do the right thing when they know perfectly well that uh, at least glyphosate has now got a, a reputation of being a carcinogen and uh, we've recommended to them that they do some kind of survey as a baseline to find out just how many people are already suffering uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma within the Shire. Your issue you've pointed out before is that um, you can use goats to get rid of weeds. And is that happening in many places? It's, it's an expanding industry. Indeed, I just saw something uh, during the last week that... Uh, in the centre of Australia, they're also starting to use camels systematically on some properties to eliminate woody weeds as well. Yes, goats are used. For example, the steeper inclines along the Eastern Freeway uh, are now using goats. So um, CityLink, yes, if, they, if we can get CityLink on board, then surely councils can give goats a thought as well. Although, of course, that's not the only option. Um, there are weed steaming machines. There are other 
uh, non-toxic, uh, more organic chemicals that are available. Councils really should be thinking about these other options and running trials to see whether they'll work or not. I mean, a large number of councils have already done that. Uh, some of them have decided to ban glyphosate and other synthetics outright, including councils like the Cookshire in North Queensland. Uh, in New South Wales, we've got uh, Fairfield and George's River. Uh, in Victoria, Warrnambool City Council, the Yarra Council, which is, of course, uh, an urban council. And then in WA, there are five different councils, including, for instance, Fremantle, which is urban, but then Jundalup, which is more of your rural council, and also Stirling, which is in the hills. It can be done. It may be more labour-intensive. It may cost a little bit more. But if you're talking about human health and safety and the impacts on the environment, then I think it's a conversation that needs to be held. And it's really great that both Moreland and the Limbic uh, councils in, in uh, Melbourne or around Melbourne are um, now considering their, their positions about the use of glyphosate. You know, these are all good developments. For instance, um, in the Limbic Council questionnaire, one of the issues that was raised was the use of uh, one-use or single-use plastic containers, food containers in the Shire. And this is part of the move by all of the councils now to uh, follow the state government, which in the next couple of years, it looks as though the state government will bring in a law outlawing single-use containers as well in favour of ones that are biodegradable are made from more natural materials. Uh, we, we have to stop polluting our environment with synthetic chemicals and creating plastics, which we use for five minutes and then last for maybe 500 years in the environment, creating havoc for um, native organisms of all descriptions. It's great that these discussions are happening and um, I hope that they will come to a good conclusion. It really is up to local residents to speak up to their own council and to say, we want some action on these things. And uh, I think Nalimbic is, is showing the way. For instance, it had also questions about uh, uh, smoking in the vicinity of public buildings, which I believe they want to ban. And another one was the issue of uh, fencing using barbed wire, which of course is an animal welfare issue, not only for um, farmed animals, but also for the native animals that need to move through the environment to survive. So great discussions, and uh, we hope for some more sympathetic policies on looking after our environments and also our public health as a result of these initiatives that local government is taking. An issue you've been talking about now for quite a number of months is the radiating of fresh fruit and vegetables. It's been gazetted. What does that mean? Well, it means now that Food Stands Australia New Zealand's decision to allow the irradiation of all fresh fruits and vegetables, that's to say all fresh fruits and vegetables that are um, identified as having uh, infestations of Queensland fruit fly or other insect pests, will be irradiated and uh, now that it, the law the new law is gazetted that's now permitted it means that uh, fresh fruits and veggies all of them are candidates for being exposed to the equivalent energy of uh, 
and it will be x-rays in the main uh, of between 1.5 and 10 million x-rays if you can imagine how much energy that is. Uh, it's an enormous amount of energy. It's energy that would kill you if you were exposed to it. So it also kills the nutritional value and the life out of our fruits and vegetables as well. And that's why we have been arguing strenuously for the last three decades, actually, that uh, our foods not be exposed in this way. However, food standards Australia New Zealand sees it differently and uh, the state government ministers who have been asked to overturn that new law uh, were unresponsive. The other thing to say though is that in the FASANS rules these irradiated fruits and vegetables will be required to be labelled at the point of sale so that any shopper who goes into a supermarket or a fruit and veggie store should be notified that something has been irradiated so I think it's now up to us, the shoppers, to make damn sure, firstly, that the supermarkets abide by the rules, and that will mean putting a sign up at the point of sale. So we're, we're asking everybody to uh, raise with their supermarket managers, uh, how are you going to deal with uh, the fact that irradiated fruits and veggies, which may not, may look like they're still fresh, are being brought into fresh fruit and veggie sections and will require a label. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to sell them? Are you going to market them in the same section as the fresh fruits and veggies where there can be confusion? What kind of labelling are you going to use? Uh, is it going to be obvious to customers or is it going to be essentially hidden behind uh, a dinky little logo or some other thing that people won't understand? Uh, there are many questions that can be asked and uh, we really need people now to put the supermarkets and the fruit and veggie stores on the spot about the fact that uh, the labelling of uh, irradiated fruit and vegetables is required. They're not fresh. They have been substantially treated. Their nutritional value and we think also their safety has been affected and uh, shoppers must have a choice, must be well informed and have a choice about whether or not to buy these uh, treated vegetables and fruits. Can you explain to me why it's all right to irradiate fruit and vegetables, but it's not a good idea to irradiate human beings? Well, that's right. You know, even, even an X-ray, which is a minimum dose these days, um, people should be minimising their exposure to um, medically uh, utilised Radiation. So, for instance, I always think twice when I go to the dentist if the dentist suggests that I may need radiation, you know, a, an X-ray. Um, I'm pretty, um, pretty wary about that. If there's an alternative, uh, you certainly should use it. For instance, um, in medical treatments, maybe an MRI scan or something like that that's likely to expose you to a bit less radiation should be um, an option of choice. So people should be asking as well. I mean, the other things, of course, that are irradiated and sometimes for good reason are um, hospital equipment, for instance. We need our hospital equipment to be absolutely bug-free and so all hospital equipment is irradiated these days in order to ensure that it doesn't infect somebody to whom it's administered. So um, there are some legitimate uses like that. But 
we see other issues that are unresolved. For instance, in the discussion about the irradiation, the fresh fruits and vegetables, we kept reminding the ministers and food standards that one of the big unresolved problems is the issue of pet food. Pet food coming in from overseas is irradiated. And in um, uh, 2009, Canadian imported irradiated pet food caused very substantial nervous system disorders in a lot of cats. Some died, others were permanently disabled. Food standards sort of shrugged that off saying, oh, that was species specific. It, it wouldn't happen to humans. You know, we've got this long experience of, uh, of astronauts eating irradiated food, for example, and uh, they've never had a problem. You know, yes, cats seem to be dying but it's just cats and it's nothing to do with human beings. We've never accepted that. It's never been properly explained what went wrong. And uh, of course, there's now, because dog food is still irradiated, there's also a warning uh, that you shouldn't feed dog food to cats because the cat food has been banned. It's no longer irradiated. Um, this is still a big mystery. It's not been resolved after more than a dozen years of asking the regulators to do more research and inquiring into why this happened. It just should be a red flag for anything that's irradiated uh, going into the human food supply as far as we're concerned. Do look out for those fresh fruits and veggies that have been irradiated coming into the supermarkets. Do have a word with the manager of the supermarket. And if you get an answer, uh, get back to Gene Ethics with some some intelligence on what they plan to do because we wrote to 13 supermarkets. Uh, we had a response from Aldi. We had a response from Woolworths and no responses from any of the others. And quite frankly, the Aldi and the Woolworths responses were really not credible and not worth the paper they were written on because they pretty much said, oh, we'll just follow the, whatever rules Food Standards Australia New Zealand sets. But uh, we think the regulator has done a really poor job of um, introducing this, shepherding it through the system because the Queensland government was the applicant in the first place. It was a bit of a mate's deal as far as we're concerned. And there are these unresolved problems. So it's now up to shoppers. Get busy shoppers. Have a talk to your supermarket. If you're of a mind to, don't buy the irradiated fruits and veggies. The mitochondrial law reform, what stage is that at now? Well, there was a Senate inquiry which closed last week and we made a substantial submission. There have been 37 submissions. Everybody's now in agreement that uh, this proposed research and clinical use of the new uh, IVF methods that would come out of the research will modify the uh, DNA and the genetics of future human beings that it will be inherited, that all of the descendants of those people who are created through this new process uh, will be affected, that the human gene pool may be disrupted. As a result, uh, we are recommending to that Senate inquiry that they simply call for the bill to be rejected. However, um, it's interesting to read some of the 37 submissions from a number of different uh, groups around the country, and there's one in particular that... Uh, I read over the weekend 
really alert you because one of the research institutes, Robinson, in South Australia, is very clear that the research protocols that are proposed are really inappropriate and quite inadequate. I think there are so many technical questions to be answered before they even consider introducing this that really we should be back to the drawing board. They haven't done a good job. The federal government has been fudging it. The prime minister is the uh, patron of the main promoter of mitochondrial DNA manipulation. And uh, I think it's pretty unsatisfactory that a snow job is being done on all the MPs and the senators who have an individual conscience vote. So we're asking them also when this bill, the mitochondrial reform bill, comes up before the parliament, if it comes to the parliament, to vote no, because there are so many technical, ethical, social, legal uh, uncertainties about this. And the whole thing uh, is just being pushed forward by ideology rather than science. It's got these trappings of science around it, but as we can see from some of the submissions from scientific institutions, it's really got a, many, many unresolved problems. And what the bill proposes basically is a fast track from the lab bench through to general clinical practice without any further consultation with the public or the parliament. It would go before a committee of the National Health and Medical Research Council, which is an appointed committee, and I must say that the membership uh, is pretty questionable as well, and they would be allowed to issue licenses for the transition of the mitochondrial research from the lab bench through various stages and then into general clinical practice in the IVF industry, and it would basically be secret. The secrecy surrounding it of what stage it's up to and how many people are involved, who has been genetically engineered and who hasn't, and what the impacts on future generations will be, is simply unmonitored and would remain a secret, as it has done in the UK, which is the only country in the world which before us has um, approved this. We're asking people now to contact their own MP, the federal MP, and the senators in our state, and there are 12 of those, uh, and say to them, we don't want the mitochondrial law reform bill 2021 to be passed. Uh, there are too many issues. Vote no if this comes before the House or the Senate. Great to talk once again to Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. It's clear that there's a concerted information campaign being put into action by opponents of the Cuban Revolution after genuine protests broke out in Cuba earlier this month, with people taking to the streets in various cities to express their discontent with the government over real issues such as food shortages and electricity blackouts. And many see the hidden hand of the US blockade sparking the protests. At the weekend, I spoke with activist and journalist Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. And, as always, events have a history, sometimes a long history. So I asked Sasha to look back in history to two important dates for Cuba, 1898 and 1959, for some understanding 
of the current situation in Cuba. 1898 really was the year that Cuba officially at least achieved its independence. Now, this was the culmination of you know, a, a decades-long struggle um, on the part of Cuban patriots and Cuban independence fighters to throw off the yoke of Spanish colonialism. So the first independence war had actually, was actually uh, across the 1860s right into the 1870s. That one actually failed. Uh, there was a lot of division within the movement. You had a division between individuals who wanted full independence, individuals who wanted to actually annex Cuba to the US as a means of ensuring independence from Spain, and outright um, what, what they called integracionistas who wanted to just stay with Spain. It failed. Spain was able to reassert control in a very bloody war. And for the next uh, two decades, really, Spain maintained its grip on Cuba. In 1895, we have the outbreak of the Second Independence War. Now, this one is far better organised, more ideologically defined. You have really famous individuals taking part this time around. For example, José Martí, who's a national hero in Cuba, the famous poet and, ideal, and ideological thinker. And you have Antonio Maceo, who was an Afro-Cuban general. and uh, He was called the Man of Iron, not only because of his, his bronze skin colour, but because he survived several dozen wounds throughout the independence wars. He was seen as this invincible man. And he was really greatly missed when he finally did succumb to his wounds towards the end of the war. But of course, even though Cuba does oust the Spanish in 1898, this raises uncomfortable an uncomfortable sort of relationship and dynamic with Cuba's northern neighbour, the United States. Now, the US had been intensely watching the developments in Spain uh, and in, no, in Cuba specifically and Spain's weakening grip on the island. The US at this stage was, of course, eager to expand its empire and it saw that Spain was the weakest of the European imperial centres, essentially, and it was looking at Cuba, it was looking at Puerto Rico and the Philippines in Asia as sort of these new vanguards of the US empire. And of course, when the Cuban uh, independence fighters did begin their war of liberation against Spain, the US also decided to intervene. They didn't want the Cuban independence fighters to win by themselves because that would mean that they would be a legitimate force and a legitimate government. They had no interest whatsoever in the independence war. They just wanted to make sure that Spain lost and that America beat Spain so that they could then justify their intervention in Cuba and justify their control over Cuba. Now, this, of course, resulted in the Spanish-American War throughout the 1890s, which resulted in Spain's humiliating defeat in a naval sense by the hands of the US. And, of course, on the island of Cuba, the Cuban independence fighters also defeated the Spanish forces, and they were forced to withdraw. Now, what America then does is essentially it intervenes. It implements a military dictatorship under the, under the order of the US Marines. There's a massive campaign of arrests, of executions, of expulsions of you know, high-ranking Cuban patriots and independence fighters, widespread peasant and worker discontent that the US puts down, very similar to what happened in Haiti just a few decades later. You know, what essentially happens during this period is the US authorises the Platt Amendment, which essentially gives the US the right to privatise currently nationalised or publicly owned companies, to intervene in Cuba's internal banking as it likes, to set quotas and tariffs as it likes for um, Cuban products, so that it can essentially make Cuba pay more for US products and make the US pay less for Cuban products. It essentially becomes this grossly unequal imperialist appendage of the US. That is what Cuba becomes. Uh, but by 1901, 1902, the US recognises it's not wanted. You know, there's widespread unrest, widespread riots against US occupation, and they withdraw. 
but they essentially uh, leave behind an elite that is more than happy to continue with these exploitative and uh, parasitic policies. Uh, the Cuban elite, backed by the US, maintains the Platt Amendment. It doesn't do anything to reverse the privatizations of Cuban industry and Cuban institutions, which are now owned by the US. All Cuban banking by that point was owned by the United States, which is just shocking. From 1901, 1902 onwards, what we have is called La Botella, uh, or the bottle, which is what it's known in Cuba. Uh, known by in Cuba, and this is essentially a period of intense corruption. Um, the bottle, as it was called, was essentially a metaphor for all the different elites passing around the bottle of corruption, um, you know, to the landowners, to the US-backed oligarchs, to the factory owners, to the urban bourgeoisie, so that everyone got a bit of a taste. And that is exactly what happens. And then throughout the 1910s, the 1920s, again, you just have these increasingly incompetent, corrupt, despotic individuals taking power in these sorts of power struggles between different components of the Cuban elite. But it's also important to note that during this period, there's a flourishing of really progressive grassroots movements too that react to this. There's the Communist Student Union at the University of Havana, which eventually becomes the Union of Young Communists in post-revolutionary Cuba. And they have a number of really high-profile individuals. For example, Antonio Milla is a really well-known student activist. Uh, the first Congress of Cuban Women, which eventually, you know, becomes the inspiration for the Federation of Cuban Women after the revolution. Black conscience groups, black grassroots education groups amongst Afro-Cuban populations. So you have this whole melting pot of really progressive groups emerging to challenge these US-backed Cuban elites. Now, what the US does in response to this is it enlists the aid of a particularly brutal military official, uh, Machado, um, who takes over for quite a, quite a long time in the late 1920s and into the 1930s. Now, he unleashes a wave of tyranny and a wave of terror uh, on these progressive groups. There's a campaign of arrests, murders. Antonio Media, who I said was the star of the student communist movement, is murdered by Machado's security forces. I mean, you know, this, of course, engenders fierce resistance, but for a time, the repression is so total that there's very little room for these groups to operate. The, it becomes a police, even more of a police state than it already was. Machado ends up being forced to give up power. There are, there are mass uprisings against him. And then what we have by the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s is the rise of a very interesting man and actually quite a progressive individual, Grau San Martín. Now, Fidel Castro has actually said in his writings that he was inspired in large part by this individual, at least in, in certain economic and political policies of his. Now, Grau San Martín was allowed to win what many have termed a fair election because the elite was wary of implementing another sort of military, you know, really heavily militarised and hated government like Machado's. So they did have to sort of give a bit of leeway at this point. Otherwise, it could have sparked revolution, which eventually, it, as we'll see, it did. But Gros San Martín is most well known for his constitution of the 1940s. Now, this was a really progressive constitution that he implemented in Cuba with workers' rights for the first time in Cuba's history. It ensured universal suffrage amongst all men and all women. Um, and there were a range of other assurances for freedom of speech, freedom of association with these radical groups so that they wouldn't be persecuted. But what, of course, happens is he's overthrown. He's barely in charge for a year before he's overthrown by a plan or by an operation led by the U.S. Embassy and Batista, Fulgencio Batista, who's the most well-known of the Cuban despots. Um, now he, of course, overthrows Grau San Martín. He, quote-unquote, wins. He repeals the new constitution. He sells off what little, land, what little land and institutions weren't owned by the U.S. and U.S. companies to the U.S. and to U.S. companies. And then, you know, he, he serves the term 
There's a brief interlude, and then he takes over again in a military coup once and for all. He puts down any any sort of pretense that Cuba was a democracy, and he unleashes a wave, again, a wave of terror. He increases Cuba's subservience to the U.S. tenfold by, as I said, selling off Cuba's land and selling off Cuba's dignity, really. Um, I mean, he was just embarrassing. You know, he, he was a Mussolini-type figure. He loved, you know, his parades and he loved his marches, but he was a... He was a man who lacked any sort of substance. He wasn't charismatic. His treatment of Cubans and to the Cuban working and peasant classes is what sparks the revolution. All of this resentment towards his behaviour and the fact that he sells out his island, you know, even more than the previous three decades of, of, of American-backed regimes, of course, provides the groundswell of support for the 26th of July movement, um, which is, of course, headed by Fidel Castro. It includes such famous individuals as Che Guevara, Raul Castro, um, former president of Cuba as well, uh, and a number of really high-profile women too, Celia Sanchez and Vilma Espin, who will go on to preside over very significant institutions in post-revolutionary Cuba. And they, of course, launched their attack on the Moncada barracks in the far eastern city of Santiago de Cuba in 1953. Uh, it fails. It's a, it's a poorly planned operation. Uh, most of the revolutionaries are captured. Many are killed and tortured. Uh, and Fidel Castro and many others are transported to the Isle of Youth off the coast of Cuba, which was a notorious detention centre. Uh, it was also used to house, or it was an asylum used to house so-called insane people, a lot of whom coincidentally were radical and progressive individuals that were just labelled insane by the regime. And it's of course here that Fidel Castro in his famous legal defence uh, delivers the speech history will absolve me. It's an incredibly powerful, incredibly convincing denunciation of US-controlled Cuba. It's a vindication of Fidel Castro and of the movement that he's leading of the desires of the Cuban uh, working and peasant classes. And it, it gains widespread publicity throughout the island um, and across Latin America as well at this time. Even amongst, the, as I said, the pro-Batista press, uh, which was a significant number of, of the newspapers and radio stations on the island, they give significant airtime to it, often to attack it, that the people listening really aren't interested. They, there's very little public confidence in Batista or in um, the institutions that Batista presides over. And throughout 1953, I mean, Fidel Castro is released. His legal defence is so powerful and the public support for him becomes so great that they do have to release him and a number of the other revolutionaries. And then the guerrilla struggle begins in earnest from um, 1954 up to 1959. It does essentially become a civil war. You know, there are full-scale battles. Batista's military on the on the surface looks like it's the better equipped and the better trained one. But by this point, there is significant demoralisation throughout the army. Uh, the, the generals and the colonels in Batista's force are really cruel. There's no real rapport between this elite, this military elite, and the everyday soldier. Many everyday soldiers are actually really sympathetic to Del Castro and to the Cuban revolutionary forces. And so the 26th of July movement gained speed, gained steam. Raul Castro coordinates the eastern uh, portion of the battle. Che Guevara, the, the centre, or the uh, La Central, which is um, the middle region of Cuba. And Juan Almeida, who's uh, another revolutionary, is chiefly in charge of the western portion of the island. And Fidel Castro is, of course, involved in all three components of the war. This time around, it's an incredibly well-planned offensive. It enjoys mass popular support. You know, people just join the guerrilla forces um, from off the side of the road. This has been documented in footage and in photos. So it, it's a really genuinely popular um, revolutionary movement. And they end up wiping out 
Batista's forces. He has to flee to the Dominican Republic with the US's support. He's airlifted out of the country and he manages to take several million dollars with him from public coffers, which is, you know, I suppose a last insult to the Cuban people and to the Cuban nation. And uh, 1959, January 1st, Cuba is declared free of US subversion of US subjugation, it's declared a free nation. The revolution has won. Millions of people flood into the plaza of the revolution on that day. There's a general sense of euphoria. There's numerous images documenting and videos documenting this and documenting Fidel Castro's famous speeches on the eve of the revolution's victory. But of course, while there's euphoria and elation in Cuba, there's immense concern in the United States. Now, at the time, Eisenhower is in charge and he actually refuses to meet with Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro announces that he's willing to maintain cordial relations with the United States, provided the two countries operate on an equitable basis. And he actually wants to go to the United States to talk with Eisenhower, and he's barred entry. Eisenhower doesn't even give him so much as a second thought, which shows the US's arrogance and really does put to rest any claim that Cuba was being antagonistic towards the United States. The facts clearly demonstrate that Cuba has only ever wanted an equitable and fair relationship with the US where the US isn't dictating terms to Cuba. And by 1960, we have the embargo, which gets put in place. Now, the embargo is a sweeping range of economic sanctions that covers most of Cuba's industry. Um, in fact, almost all of Cuba's industry, particularly the key industries like sugar, coffee, tobacco, rum. And it essentially, not only does it prevent US companies from trading with Cuba, it also prevents most other countries from trading with Cuba unless they're willing to put up with really ridiculous sanctions from US companies. And this is, of course, the thing. Obviously, a third country isn't going to want to trade with Cuba if it's going to be uh, risking sanctions for at least 180 days from some of the most powerful and financially attractive US companies on earth. What was the excuse yep. for the embargo? The excuse for the embargo, initially, uh, it was a reaction to the nationalisation campaign, um, which Fidel Castro began at the end of 1959 and into 1960. So that's where they nationalised all the major US companies, including some of the really well-known ones, for example, Bacardi Rum. And this incenses the United States, you know, because this has been tried before in other Latin American countries. For example, in Guatemala, when Jacobo Arbenz had tried to nationalise some of the banana plantations and things like that. And, of course, he was overthrown in a military coup. But, of course, there was no force that could, that could feasibly do this in Cuba after the revolution. So that was the initial, uh, I suppose, spark for this US policy. But, you know, it does say very clearly in the opening text of this legislation, and you can actually look it up, that the purpose of the embargo is to create conditions of misery it's to create conditions of scarcity of the most basic goods to then in turn lead to, a, to social unrest and, a, and an overthrow of the Cuban government. That has always been the intended purpose of these sanctions. And that is what they wanted from the very start, even though Fidel Castro initially did not characterise his revolution as a socialist revolution. It was progressive nationalist, but he actually did not use those words until after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So from the beginning, this was part of the US's intense paranoia about potential, not even just communist, but progressive nationalist, left-wing nationalist movements that weren't going to support uh, US interference any longer. Just explain the Missile Crisis. 
the human missile crisis is is often portrayed in, in a in a very skewed way. It's often presented as the Soviets planting missiles in Cuba that have the capacity to destroy U.S. targets, hit a lot of U.S. cities. Um, in fact, stretching across right to the west coast in California, it is then presented that the you know the U.S. has plays this this saviour role in sort of diffusing the tensions and and you know getting the the missiles out of Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. But what really happened? was that the U.S. had already placed missiles in Turkey in the 1950s, right on the USSR's borders. In fact, in a far greater quantity than what the USSR would eventually place in Cuba. The USSR, acting in actually a very logical manner, then placed its missiles in Cuba. Now, this wasn't only to deter U.S. placement of of missiles in Turkey, but of course, Cuba had just fended off the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, which was a U.S. CIA-orchestrated invasion uh, com- consisting of Miami Cubans, so the Cubans who had fled after the revolution, typically wealthy Cubans who had lost their land, who have a burning hatred uh, for the Cuban government and the Cuban revolution to this day. And they staged an invasion of the island, hoping that they would be able to overthrow the revolution. Now, of course, that didn't happen. You know, even just thousands of citizens of Cuba rallied to defend their island, to stave off these attackers. And it was a humiliating defeat for the Cuban-American community and for the US government. Uh, So this was a way to defend Cuba as well by placing missiles here to deter any further aggression on the part of the United States. And of course, what does end up happening is you have these 13 days of really intense negotiations and a really tense global atmosphere where it's, you know, where people are wondering, is this going to, to lead to a nuclear war? But of course it doesn't. The US agrees to withdraw its missiles from Turkey. The USSR agrees to withdraw its missiles from Cuba. And the USSR also manages to successfully get a clause in in this agreement that basically mandates America cannot invade Cuba under any circumstances, that America cannot engage in military, direct military intervention in Cuba under any circumstances. Um, and I think we do need to recognise that, you know, Cuba, Cuba does, did owe a massive, a massive debt to the Soviet Union for ensuring the, the survival of their nation, not only during that period, but as we know much later on, you know, for, for decades, the Soviets essentially subsidised Cuba's economy. They even bought sugar, which was Cuba's main export, at an inflated price so that the, the Cuban economy could continue to grow, so that they could spend so much on education and healthcare and housing and infrastructure. I've spoken, as I've said in previous interviews, with a lot of people who lived through that period, and they do talk about how Cuba was, a, you know, a relatively prosperous country in spite of the sanctions. You know, there was wide availability of goods, of food from the USSR, from all the Soviet republics. There was a wide availability of literature translated into Spanish from the Soviet republics. It was a really strong, intense and fraternal relationship that sadly ended in the 1990s, 1991, with the special period. So, so this is essentially when the USSR collapses uh, and the rest of Eastern Europe follows, and Cuba loses over three quarters of its economic trading partners. So three quarters of its economy just collapse overnight. The Cuban economy shrinks by like a massive amount. It's, some people say, some estimates, more conservative ones, estimate 25%. Some people go much higher. The Cuban peso, its value collapses. There's widespread scarcities across the island. And Fidel Castro essentially has two options. Either he goes by it down the route that the other former Soviet countries have gone down, which is to essentially liberalise the economy, do away with the socialist system and integrate into the, the new globalising world, the neoliberal world system, or 
he continues with the revolution, which is the far more difficult task, but ultimately the right choice. And that is what he does. So he, he announces the special period or special period outside of wartime, because this was a wartime plan that he implemented. It involved, you know, severe rationing to ensure that everyone got at least the minimum amount of food that they needed, equitable distribution of medicines, of fuel to ensure that, um, uh, you know, the country can keep on running, that there's enough public transport to get people across the island to work and things like that. And it's an incredibly harrowing period. The U.S. actually increases its sanctions with the Berticelli Act. It's an incredibly difficult time for the island, but they survive. This economic plan... Um, this rationing ends up ensuring the island can survive. There's a limited opening up of the economy, chiefly in the tourism sector, that begins by the end of the 90s to bring in much-needed revenue. And then we see the economy begin to recover, and it recover, recovers quite strongly throughout the early 2000s um, as a result. But they didn't do away with their socialist system. And that, again, is a reason why the US is trying now more than ever to destabilise the island. I'm speaking with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, student and broadcaster, about the current situation in Cuba today. But as I said at the outset of this interview, it's important to understand the history, to understand the present. Talk about those sanctions. Have they been upped the ante ever since they were first brought in, or has there been a period when a US president might have relaxed them a little. The really sad reality is these sanctions have never been repealed. Not one of the sanctions in this trade embargo have been repealed. The initial embargo was grueling enough for Cuba in 1960. And, you know, consecutive governments, including the Kennedy administration, uh, right through um, during the Reagan era, a whole host of new sanctions were placed on the island in relation to the, the Cuba's relationship with the Grenadian People's Government, which was overthrown by the US as well. Grenada is a small island in the Caribbean that also had a progressive socialist uh, revolution, but it was overthrown by direct military invasion from the United States. And as, as I said, throughout the 90s as well, it was increased. Now, a lot of people often like to talk about how Obama engaged in this period of re reproachment with the Cuban government. Now, that's true. Uh, you know, they did open up new avenues of trade for the island, uh, tourism. Caps were lifted for the first time in decades. But I would like to stress the sanctions were never lifted. Not a single sanction was actually lifted. These were all things done on the U.S.'s side that allowed the U.S., to go in, but the, the, the Cuba-specific sanctions were never lifted. And of course, Trump, <laughs> from 2016 to 2020, implements over 200 new sanctions related to the embargo. Specifically, again, this is relating to essentially reversing what Obama did. So he essentially officialises in the sanctions, caps on tourism, he eliminates remittances so that, uh, you know, the money that relatives in America and other countries sent to Cuba can no longer make it to the island, can no longer make it into the public purse all in an effort to, to spark some sort of social unrest that can then be exploited. And Joe Biden, for all of his rhetoric during the, the 2020 election campaign, who he said he was going to look at lifting the embargo, has done nothing of the sort. He's done nothing related to looking at lifting any of the Cuba sanctions. He hasn't even looked at engaging in dialogue with the Cuban government. And this just shows that it is still a bipartisan issue. It is still, you know, really, the, the blockade is strongly supported on both sides of the, U, of the US political sphere, um, Republicans and Democrats alike, because they both have a vested interest in destroying a, a socialist example in Latin America and, of course, a socialist example for the rest of the global South. And then we have COVID. 
I mean, what the US did during COVID is just, it is genocidal. It is actually genocidal. There are lawyers and there are legal academic experts who have written papers on this. And under the Geneva Convention and under a number of other human rights conventions around the world, what the US is doing to Cuba, particularly in times of global crisis, which is a pandemic like COVID-19, it is genocidal policy. There, there is an intent to harm and to kill Cubans. And that is what they have done. You know, it might not seem like that on the surface, but, you know, all this scarcity of medicine, this scarcity of food, these trade sanctions, this political bullying at the global level, it has led to deaths. And we'll, we'll probably never know how many, because these sorts of deaths, I mean, you know, they're not done by, you know, by shooting Cubans, but they are still, it is, a mur it is murder. It is actually murder what the blockade does to Cubans. We'll probably never know the true death toll of the blockade, which is really, really um, worrying. But yes, you're right. During COVID-19, I mean, the Cuban economy last year contracted by 11%. Tourism collapsed. The Cuban economy is in really dire straits. And Trump implements more sanctions. That's his response to this. Last year, he implemented more sanctions specifically related to the import of food and medicine which is directly led, and we'll get to this soon, I imagine, which has directly led to these protests recently on July 11th. But yeah, it has just been a, a, a continuous harshening of the blockade. And despite all the rhetoric from supposedly progressive forces in the United States, nothing has changed, and I do not expect anything to change in the near future. And this comes, mind you, at the same time as the United Nations, again, for the 20th year in a row, voting 184 countries to two, the US and Israel, to lift the blockade. And they do cite the fact that it is during times of pandemic when the World Health Organization and the United Nations are calling for global solidarity and specifically global health solidarity. And for the US to be targeting health products and health-related trade, it is. It's, it's genocidal and it, it does have a murderous intent. What was the lead-up to the weekend of July the 11th? So this is very interesting. So, of course, on July 11th, uh, the world woke up to news of protests in Cuba. Now, most of the news has said initially, you know, this range from Reuters to the Washington Post to the ABC, that thousands of Cubans had taken to the street. A week later, that had risen to tens of thousands. It's not actually that well known, but the very first article said it was hundreds. So we've seen this increasing exaggeration, first of all, uh, of these protests. It's, very, it's true that there were indeed mobilisations in Cuba expressing discontent so first, I'd like to discuss, you know, there are two components of this, of this situation. One is the social media campaign that preceded it, and the second was, as I've said, the, the mainstream media reporting of the situation. In the lead-up, in the week leading up to these protests on July 11th, for about the five days preceding it, there were tweets with the hashtag SOSCuba um, going around at a, at a rate of about 100 per day. These were being circulated chiefly in the Cuban-American community in Florida, but it was also being used by members of the US government, including Democratic senators. Uh, so this gives us the first indication that this was not some, some spontaneous uprising. This was a premeditated operation because this SOS Cuba, hashtag SOS Cuba used on Twitter and on Facebook and other social media platforms was being used a week before the event actually occurred. The, these initial posts were being framed around a supposed humanitarian crisis in Cuba, that there wasn't enough medicine, that people were dying in the streets, that people were starving and being left, essentially bodies were being left around. These were some of the accusations that these initial tweets were making. 
again, no pictures, no nothing, because of course nothing had happened yet. But this was part of what, you know, what Noam Chomsky and others have called manufacturing consent, you know, establishing this alternate reality in many senses, uh, as opposed to what was really happening in Cuba. Then the day before, July 10th, these 100 or so tweets a day balloon up to 100,000 tweets using the hashtag SOS Cuba. We know that a lot of these accounts using hashtag SOS Cuba were bots. They were faked accounts, not only because of the names. I mean, no one on Twitter calls themselves, for example, Yoyita453081. That's just not an account name that people use on Twitter. That is clearly a machine. But also some of these, machi- some of these accounts were publishing or posting tweets at a rate of 10,000 per day. That's not humanly possible. Only a machine, only a bot can publish that many tweets in a day. And then on the day itself, those 100,000 tweets balloon to 500,000 tweets a day, which is an inordinate amount of tweets for hashtag SOS Cuba. Again, many bots. A lot of them come from the Cuban-American community in Florida. A lot of the bots come from Spain, which has a long history of intervening in its former colonies at the behest of the United States. In fact, there were 1,300 accounts that have now been proven to be bots, either funded by the Spanish or the US governments. And the US has also relied on, relied on the internet uh, for a very specific reason. And in fact, it goes back about a decade because the internet has been the only way that, Q, that the US can really sort of interfere in Cuba and attempt to spread misinformation. There's very few other organizations, well, in fact, there are no other organizations that are within Cuba that are going to be penetrated by the United States easily. They're all pro-government. So the US really does have to use the internet uh, to try and sort of ferment this unrest and spread this disinformation. And it began really in 2013-2014 when the CIA actually tried to create a Cuban Twitter. That's what they called it, which was going to be a Cuba-specific media platform that would spread misinformation in Cuba. It didn't work. It wasn't really picked up, particularly because at the same time, Cuba had signed a deal with Google to expand internet across the island. So that people didn't even really know that this Cuban Twitter existed. But it was an attempt nonetheless by the United States to sort of, I suppose, latch on to some of these dis- disaffected groups. And of course, the Cuban opposition movement, which is very small, but it still exists in Cuba. And then what they switched to was essentially cultivating individuals, again, through social media, that could be taken up and adopted as, you know, the darlings of the West, celebrities in the West. And this is chiefly Cuban musicians. There's a number of really interesting academic papers on the fact that the IA actually infiltrated the Cuban rap scene and the Cuban hip-hop scene, which was in the 90s a way for the, the Cuban, for Cuban youth to express, you know, their discontent with the really, really dire situation that existed in those days. But a lot of these individuals have since actually sold out. They now go and they live in the United States. They get paid millions of dollars to churn out anti-Cuban government songs. And this actually happened earlier in the year. There was a song called Patria y Vida, which is this sort of perversion of the Cuban Patria o Muerte, which is homeland or death, and they turned it into homeland and life, which was this attempt to sort of, you know, again, publish an anti-Cuban government song. Again, really popular in America and in the Cuban-American community, popular in some sectors of um, the Cuban population, the Cuban youth particularly, but not so much anyone else, really. This sort of social media campaign has a precedent. It's been a decade of, of America trying to find the best way to manufacture consent on the Cuba issue through the media abroad. And of course, 
domestically with these social media accounts. Um, because I actually spoke with some Cubans. Some were very well informed because they were listening to Cuban government media. But others who were at home, who were listening to the lockdown rules and things like that, only had social media to go off in those initial hours when the protests began. And they actually had no idea what was happening because of how disinformative, because of how false this information was on social media. And the other thing I would say is the reporting in the mainstream media has been really, really disingenuous. So they have said that thousands of people came out to call for the overthrow of the government, all these sorts of things. Now, firstly, if you look at the pictures that have been published, and because there are, there are videos, there are pictures, you will not see thousands of people in most of these images. Some don't even get above 50, if you actually bother to look and count how many people are in these videos and in these pictures. But the other really big problem is that there are pro-government marches, which the government called on to essentially repel these anti-government demonstrators that are being sold as anti-government protests. There's a really good one that The Guardian used, which was quite embarrassing, actually, of hundreds of protesters surrounding a monument. They said that that was an anti-government protest. But if you actually look at the picture, there is a 26th of July flag, which is a Communist Party of Cuba flag, in the demonstration, and it's a very big one too, so it's clearly not an anti-government demonstration. In another one that the ABC used, there's a woman with her mask on and she's sort of shouting quite angrily. They say that she was part of an anti-government protest. Other Cuban media sources have published videos of pro-government marches, and she was in them. You can actually see her chanting pro-government slogans. Again, a complete falsification of what this image is. And another one, which Human Rights Watch used on the cover of its report on Cuba and the Cuban protests, um, an Afro-Cuban woman with a red singlet on and with a Cuban flag on her back, and they said she was an anti-government protester. Her name is Betty Paisol Quesada. She actually went on Twitter and denounced, she said, I denounce really strongly the use of my picture, of the picture of me as an anti-government demonstrator. She said, I'm not a criminal and I'm not a delinquent like these anti-government demonstrators. I was in the pro-government marches and then Twitter cancelled her account. Twitter shut down her account. So there is an intense media campaign being orchestrated to, to give the sense that there is some sort of mass uprising in Cuba where they, these media sources can't even find pictures of sufficient anti-government protesters to even say that that's the case. Now, I'm not saying there weren't. Clearly there were. And we do have videos, confirmed videos, of anti-government protesters. But as I said, they are at the most a couple of hundred, at the most the ones that we can verify. But still, Sasha, we have the blockade, we have the shortage of medicines, we have shortage of food. How is that going to be resolved? Yeah, and this is the big problem. Because many of these, and, you know, the Cuban president in his press conference on this himself acknowledged, he said there are people with legitimate grievances. You know, there are a lot of young people particularly those who are involved in tourism, who have lost their income. Now they have to rely on state, essentially social welfare, until the tourism sector picks up again. And as you said, the blockade has asphyxiated the Cuban economy. There is very little medicine. There is very little food. I would like to note, you know, that people are not starving, as these tweets and as these media articles are saying. But it is really difficult. People are only getting the bare minimum they need. The Cuban president said we need to find a way to essentially get through these problems. And, you know, they have already taken measures. One of them was to eliminate the caps on medicine and food imports and to eliminate the customs tax. I should note that these 
customs laws are pretty standard throughout the world, but the Cuban government has just lifted them in a bit to sort of get more people coming in bringing food and medicine. Now, there is a danger with that, of course. I mean, you know, there are biological hazards and all that sort of thing to worry about. But, you know, this shows that the Cuban government is responding to the demands of the Cuban people. A lot of state companies have also been given the green light to essentially eliminate the pay scale. So this is going to allow state-owned companies to essentially set their own wages for workers, not for CEOs, but for everyday workers, in, you know, in, in the hopes that then they'll have a bit more purchasing power and they'll be able to, um, to, to purchase more goods and in greater quantity. So the government is doing what it can, essentially, to get through this situation. They've also had really important and support and solidarity from abroad. Mexico, in the earliest hours of these protests, denounced US intervention and the blockade. Uh, the leftist president, AMLO, he's sent 800,000 syringes and, and several tonnes of food to Cuba to support the island. Venezuela and Nicaragua are also sending food, so is Argentina. So all left-wing governments in Latin America are expressing solidarity with Cuba. But I think it is also important to distinguish that the protesters who went out on that day, while some were genuine in their grievances, there were many who were not. And we know this for a number of reasons. Firstly, if you look at the, the particular slogans they were chanting, one of them was, we need vaccines. Now, this is just patently false. Cuba has enough vaccines to vaccinate everyone. In fact, they've vaccinated everyone in Havana. So that's the largest city, 2 million people, all vaccinated fully. And they're going to be vaccinated 60 to 70% by the end of August. That's a disingenuous protest slogan that has come from the United States because they are trying to uh, essentially fashion the pretexts or create the pretexts for a humanitarian intervention like they did with Venezuela, claiming there was a humanitarian crisis and they needed to send goods over into Venezuela. A very similar thing is happening in Cuba. Also, down with the communist dictatorship, that's never been a slogan in Cuban protests, because this is the other thing to forget. These aren't the first Cuban protests. There've been, you know, there have been protests for a number of um, different issues across the past, or across the history of the revolution. In the 90s, during the special period, there were larger protests than these. In 2003, there were protests. In 2019 and 2020, there were protests about animal welfare. So this isn't some like isolated case. These are the, the signs of, in a sense, a healthy democracy. You know, there is, there is a degree of conversation and of exchange between the government and the people. But these protests are saying things like down with the communist dictatorship, carrying American flags, saying, you know, we want US intervention. These are disingenuous people. These are not people who really want the best for Cuba. And the fact that they're not mentioning the blockade at all is indicative of their duplicity. Clearly, these people are not really interested in improving the situation in Cuba. As I said, some are, but they've been drowned out by these counter-revolutionaries. You know, a lot of them were actually quite violent. You know, people have condemned Cuban government forces for violence, but only one person died and only after he attacked police and overturned a police car with a bunch of other protesters, actually threatening the lives of police officers. And uh, some of them actually attacked pro-revolutionary marches. Um, so again, I will, I'll repeat, only one death across these protests from a violent individual who had a record, who had a criminal record. And this has been published. If you, you can actually go on websites, I would I would encourage people to look at the website Cuba Debate, particularly it's in Spanish and in English. Um, they provided really good coverage of this and they have a lot of the videos and the images and the debunking on their websites as well. Yeah, this man was a, was a former criminal and you know that, that's often omitted. They're, and then they, they accuse the Cuban security forces of, of violence. 
when there's, there's very little evidence to say that that was the case. They actually didn't get involved at all unless the protesters began acting in a violent way. And some protesters actually looted stores and actually trashed food and supplies of food, which again, if they're protesting about food scarcity, you would think that they wouldn't go into a store and just destroy what food there is in there. So, you know, there, there are definitely really sort of reactionary elements in these groups. And the president of Cuba said, essentially, there are three types of people. There are those with genuine concerns who he spoke with. He actually went to these communities and spoke with some of the protesters. There are criminals, which, as we've just said, were actually involved in, in a fair bit of violence in these protests. And then there are the reactionaries who have family in Miami, who have family in Florida, who received money from the United States, who received money from their families and from USAID and things to actually undertake these protests. And again, this isn't something that US, it's not like USAID hasn't done anything like that before. They're well known for, for funding these sorts of um, movements and protests. So just to keep in mind, it's not some mass uprising against the government. If anything, it's an uprising against the blockade, but it's been very disingenuously sort of manipulated in the mainstream media. And many thanks to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. And you can hear more of Sasha's work on Latin American Update Program here at 3CR on 10.30 on a Sunday morning. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.